and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, President of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, good morning, good day, everyone. It is our, our goal always to make a difference um, and create an impact regarding the aftermath of, of crime featuring inspiring guests on this show for nearly five years. And um, this 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 week's guest is no different. Um, we have in our midst today uh, Lisa Buskey, uh, who is a um, an accomplished author. Not only is she a co-author of Grief Diaries uh, with with me in that group, but she is a a writer in her own right uh, prior to joining Grief Diaries, and she is also a homicide survivor with a very um, unique story to tell. Um, so with that backdrop, that is who we have today, and uh, very, very excited to, to have her on. But before we get started officially, want to say good morning to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Hi, Delilah. How are you? Hi, Donna. Doing fine. Doing fine. Um, I'm I'm really pleased that we have one of the other authors uh, that took part in writing your book, um, Grief Diaries Lost by Homicide. And it, it it's really, really a very compelling book. And I hope that listeners out there who who aren't even in these circumstances, you you know, you don't have to live the same circumstances to be able to um, get something, the message from, from the stories that these people tell. So I encourage everyone to get a copy. Well, thank you. Um, well said. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just sort of take it for granted that it's out there, but we, it, it can, it, it does give a message to everyone and you do not need to have homicide uh visit your life in order to get something from there and with our our society today with it being so filled with violence um and of course we never wish that on anyone but just to have a better understanding of the issue i think everyone perhaps knows of someone who has gone through what lisa and and i have so yes please do um purchase the book uh write a review pass the word. So thank you for the um, commercial, Delilah. Much appreciated. Lisa, uh, good morning and welcome to Shattered Lives. It's a pleasure to have you on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's our pleasure and hopefully this will be the start of um, other authors coming on. Um, Yours, of course, uh, having homicide in your life, it's never an easy tale to tell and everyone hopes differently, but I think you you are in the unique position in that you've had a couple of um, uh, endeavors that really have helped you through the process, and we'd like to, not only would we like to cover what happened, um, the circumstances with your sister, because it resonates with many of our listeners, 
um, who have crime or involved in some way, but also um, I'll just put it out there. You are a, a prolific author in your own right before Grief Diaries, and my understanding is that your faith has also carried you through this journey very effectively. So um, perhaps before we get into the nitty-gritty, was wondering, um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, uh, what what you had to, to bring to the table prior to, you know, joining joining our group. You are a, you know, you, you have three other books besides being the co-writer of, of Grief Diaries. So would you like to kind of give us a little bit of resume and a little bit of, um, you know, how those books are different and how they help? Oh, sure. I would love to. Um, the the book that I'm most known for would be Where's Heidi, One Sister's Journey, and that is my testimonial of my sister, Heidi Allen, was 18 years old when she was kidnapped, April 3rd, 1994. It was Easter Sunday, and she remains missing to this day. Um, so that Where's Heidi is my journey as a sister from receiving that phone call that Heidi was kidnapped through the process of my own emotions and grief cycle and dealing with, you know, everything that was happening with my parents trying to protect me, you know, from the media, from being hurt, and my misinterpreting their protection as exclusion and how it wasn't until one of my students um, told me that what I needed was Jesus and invited me to church, that, you know, I found that, you know, that faith and relationship with God, and, you know, that's what's helped me to move forward. So Where's Heidi is really my my story, because when I went looking for books to help, you know, me as the sister, you know, of a missing or the grieving sister, there wasn't a lot out there, and the ones that were were for lack of better words, very foo-foo. And I figured they didn't get it, you know, because they weren't right. reaching the heart. They, you know, it all was like a bunch of sugar and honey. And I'm like, I don't need sugar and honey. I want somebody to know what it feels like in the trenches of loss. Even in the mid-90s, that's interesting. In the mid-90s, you went looking for books. Now, was it so much the, the aspect of, of grief of a family member or a missing person or a sister what what was it that you couldn't find i'm just curious um a missing sister like you could find stuff written by parents and you know i and i found a, like there was fictional stories but i wanted you know that non-fiction i wanted somebody else you know sitting in their pajamas hiding in their bed like i was i wanted somebody to encourage me that you know there was hope and i could get out of bed right you know, and read join society with success and um somebody told me you know what if you can't find the book you want to read then write it right necessity is the mother of invention then in 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 your experience yeah so when i wrote it and i said if i could help one other sister of a missing kid you know then it was worth you know it was a six-year process taking that book from rough draft to you know final copy and print and you know I dealt with stuff I thought I had really dealt with so mm-hmm. it, even 
writing it, and then the editing and revision was still like another therapeutic healing. Yeah. And I've heard from siblings that have missing loved ones that it helped, and I've heard from, you know, ten times more than that that have not walked my walk of having, you know, their sister missing, but have lost a sibling or lost a friend, and the book has helped them to not feel alone and realize that there is positive and it's possible to, you know, survive after, you know, a loss or a tragedy. Right. Well, it sounds like you really did fill a void, although it, it maybe it, it's specific in terms of the family order or dynamic. It really wasn't. You can, so we want to give the information a couple times during the hour. Could just This might be a perfect time. Can you tell our listeners where they can get the book? Because we have many people who have missing family members from the Q Center and other people who may be listening that have this situation. Where, where can you get Where's Heidi? Um, Where's Heidi is available on Amazon.com, and it's also available online through Barnes & Noble. Okay. And those local to upstate New York can get it at the Rivers End Bookstore. But I know your Great. audience is vast across the country. So um, Barnes & Noble online and Amazon.com. Very good. Uh, what was the uh, uh, backstory of your second book? Tell us about that. Um, the second book was technically really my first book, but I didn't promote it a lot. It was a gift that I wrote for my parents. When the waves subside, there is hope. And that is an, it's an analogy. It's formatted like a children's book, but it truly is written for adults. Um, because I saw in my parents' eyes that, you know, I think they, they let us down and that they, they were weak, but to me and anybody else that looked at them, we only see strength. And around here in Lake Ontario, there's um, a lot of broken glass, you know, from people partying along the lake shores or, you know, out on their boats. And as that glass is beaten against the waves, by the time it comes up to shore, it turns into these beautiful, precious rocks. And so when the waves subside, there is hope is the analogy that a parent that has lost a child is like that broken glass that goes, you know, into the water and is beaten by the waves. But in the end, mm-hmm. they come out so much stronger and more beautiful. So it's it's formatted like a children's book, but it truly is a message of hope for parents that have lost a child to, to recognize that they are strong and that they are more beautiful because of the journey that they they didn't choose to take, but that they did have to travel. Yeah, it, that that sounds like a very powerful metaphor. To, I mean, I've never thought of something like that. Have you, Delilah? No, I think, you know, from what you're describing, it, it really sounds like a very encouraging and inspirational story that you're telling in this book. Yeah, I tried. I I wanted and I gave it to my parents as a Christmas gift. I never had intended to, you know, publish it in the respect of distribution. It was just a gift that I wanted to give my parents because I wanted them to know how strong and beautiful I saw them to be. And, you know, as any good parent, no matter whether you're 10 or 40, you know, they take your stuff right. and show their friends, look what my daughter did. And people wanted mm-hmm. the book. 
and is this um, is this the book you well. told me? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Is this the book you were telling me that the uh, funeral industry was interested in, or was that the other book? Um, no, that would be no more pain. Oh, I can okay. Fly. Yep. Tell us about no more pain. No more pain. I can fly. Um, was written after one of my friends had passed after a. Uh, a, a double journey with breast cancer. And she passed away when her daughter was a senior in high school. And, you know, that was my first loss of a, you know, a close friend my age. And just the pain that we were all feeling, you know, and some, you know, there's different vices that people turn to when they're experiencing loss and grief. And I tend to go to words and writing. That's where I find my release, my healing, and through, you know, writing and journaling after her loss came the book, um, No More Pain, I Can Fly, and it's really a letter. In the end, it ended up being more of a letter from heaven almost to the loved one to let them know that they were okay. You know, and it never started that way, which um, you probably can agree, Donna, when you start writing, sometimes it morphs into something you had never intended. Absolutely, yes. What it ended up being was something so much more beautiful. And I have people order them, and they say, oh, no, I'm going to put it with my card when I go to the funeral home to the calling hours so that they know their loved one's okay. But it's specifically written to really help those missing you know, the loved one that has died too soon, as we usually say. Yes. You know, because of their age. And I'm sure well, it would apply to, like, a grandmother or a parent. And But really, it's for those that, you know, we say they're too young. You know, why now? Right. Well, it's interesting you say that because we have a particular friend that very tragically is, um, is um, soon to be going to heaven with uh, terminal cancer, and it sounds like this book might apply. I don't know, but are all of these books that you're saying available at the same source? Uh, yes, or, they're all available you know, on Amazon and BarnesandNobles.com, and you know, at the local bookstore here in Oswego, New York. That, that's that's great. Um, okay, well, we want to make sure that everyone can pursue all of them or any one of them singly. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you got involved with Linda Chellenden Fell and Grief Diaries, and then we can, in a little bit, maybe we can delve into your story, which I know is, is painful to tell, but we, we always appreciate knowing stories because we gain so much insight. What, um, how did you get connected in, with, this, with, with this great group that we belong to? Oh, um, I so enjoy my new Grief Diaries family, and it really is a family. It's more than just the book. I was um, introduced to you and Linda and Grief Diaries through Karen Boyden, who Mm -hmm. um, wrote A Child is Missing. And she was participating in this, and she called me, and she said, Lisa, you really got to look into this. You know, this is, she goes, this is it. And so that was, you know, through another sister of a missing person, mm-hmm. you know, although our stories are very different, you know, as she was working on it, she said, oh, you got to look into this, you know, this is, so that's how I came to be here, you know, through 
another person that had lost, you know, a sister and and then that's really what we do. I mean, for anybody out there listening, that's you know, just start writing and reaching out and making those connections. None of us started from you know, staying in on our couch, you know, sometimes it's you know, those little connections. I met Karen the first time via you know, an internet search, and I found her book. Hers was the first book I found by a sister that actually helped. Right, You know, wow. when I sent an email to her, she emailed back, you know, and that was years ago, and now we're friends, and we keep in touch, and we've even met as she was traveling across the country once. You know, so you never know. You know, you read that book, right. reach out to the author. You don't, you don't know what connection might be there. Yeah, and it you know, it's like building a tapestry. And I, you know, I just want for those people that are a little bit hesitant, we, you know, to to try to look into this and it's more than our our book certainly. There are at least 16 other books and more in the works and it's perpetually growing in terms of topics and titles because there seems to be always another angle on grief and a different way to experience it because of life. And I believe there's something like between authors and co-authors, 425 um, people that Linda has to keep track of. So I don't know how she does it, but, but it, it truly is a wonderful experience. So, um, you know, I highly recommend that people go to griefdiaries.com because you will be able to, uh, find a book that meets your needs or your your family friend experience. So, you know, kudos to Linda and to everyone. She's been very generous to me and to everyone. I think this has a really good potential. We're just trying to get our book off the ground. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of difficult because of the topic, but, you know, I have hoped that it is it is going to find its place and it is going to grow with, with vehicles like what we're doing, uh, Lisa, correct? Correct. And yeah. um, on the flip side, to be um, like a co-writer, you know, and join you in this um, journey of hope and helping others, uh, Linda is fabulous, fabulous about um, making you feel comfortable. Because mm-hmm. I was I was nervous, and most people, in, at least in my situation, if you've had that tragic loss where, you know, there are criminal aspects, you know, as there are with homicide and murders and kidnappings, you know, your guard goes up. Right. You know, because what's the purpose of somebody reaching out to you? They can't really be doing this because, you know, they want nothing. You know, you kind of, you're your own devil's advocate. And, sure. you know, thankfully, because of Karen... <laughs> You know, I, I, you know, I still did the research and went forward, but Linda was wonderful. You know, she said, if you're not comfortable, don't answer the question. Right. You answer what you're comfortable answering, and if you're not, it's okay. We all understand. Mm-hmm. So well, to me, I mean, that was so helpful to me. I didn't have pressure as I went back into that loss. I knew that, you know, some of my questions might have been late, but they were in before the deadline, but I knew I had that time to process and work through it. And if I didn't get through, that was also okay. And that Mm -hmm. helped me to be, you know, a co-writer 
in a couple of the books now because I knew that pressure wasn't there. If I couldn't do it, I didn't have to force myself into an emotional um, state of wreckage. I could just say, you know what, it's not the time to write. I'm not answering that question. I can't do it. Sure. And the way um, uh, the way this is structured, and correct me if, if I'm not 100% right, maybe Delilah, you can say, this is an anthology series, which means that you there is somewhat of a structure and there are questions posed and you, you answer them in whatever manner fits it's your situation and your comfort level. It's not like you have to write chapter after chapter. Is that is that really the difference in a regular book versus an anthology? Well, anthology that kind of builds builds with a compilation of writers. Is that the definition, ladies? You're right. You describe right the compilation with different authors. Um, you know, an anthology could be. I, formatted a little differently with different authors writing a short story and then, you know, compiling them all into one book. Um, I particularly love the way The Grief Diaries is laid out with, um, you know, pretty much the the questions become the chapters which gives the picture. And I think the way that was done was, was very, very good. It, it flowed well. Um, each question basically was a chapter and all of the like I said earlier some some writers wrote maybe a paragraph others would write two or three pages so it all balanced out very nicely Mm -hmm. so yeah it, it, it does well you don't have to like start all over again with each person so that's the beauty of it too if you if you want something that flows. So, again, we're, we're trying to encourage all of you out there uh, to, to pick up this book and to, and to purchase it, to read it, to share it with family members, et cetera. So with that backdrop of all of, all of this wonderful writing and, you know, Lisa, it just, you know, we, we have given them the appetizer. Maybe now it's time to introduce the entree, which is, uh, sort of the, um, the the difficult part, and I, I certainly can um, can relate um, to trying to have to tell um, uh, uh, the the beginnings of this story um, with regard to what what happened to your sister. And so, feel free to share whatever whatever your your comfort level is. I mean, basically, it was uh, she was working at a convenience store. She was. Um, abducted and killed and her 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 body has not been discovered uh to date is that is that the very concise description and then you can fill in yes that is um that's a, a perfect yep she was working <laughs> alone at the local convenience store and i've learned that it's important to say that it was the it was 1994 so um there there weren't video cameras, you know, at every pump and inside the store. There weren't bells on the doors, you know, to come inside and outside. You know, uh, people had cell phones then. We had one. My parents owned a cell phone in a bag, you know, and the bag was bigger than 
a brown paper bag for those that remember the bag phone. That's how they started. You know, it was probably bigger than a box of tissues. So for some of you listening, you're thinking, oh, my cell phone fits inside my wallet. That wasn't the case back then. They Few people really had good. them because they were expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go back to 1994, I mean, people drove by, but, you know, not everybody had a phone in their pocket where they could call and do something instantly. Um Back at the time, I never had really thought about it, but one of the first um, one of the first gentlemen that was on the scene, he went out and you know was just from my understanding um, and my memories are scattered due to grief, and I think anybody that's experienced like a tragic um, state of grief, like the memory is so affected forever and then sometimes I get snippets and sometimes I don't and you know so to to the best of my recollection um the one of the gentlemen just you know went outside and was just trying to flag somebody down to help him because Heidi was going to school full-time she was um on schedule to graduate in May so you know within the month she'd be graduating from college she already had you know, her job interviews and a job lined up, you know, graduating with honors, and she did that a year early because we both attended a private high school, and that school closed her junior Hmm. year. So she Where did she take place? What state and city? um, Her kidnapping was in New Haven, New York. Um, It's about an hour north of Syracuse. Most people are familiar with um, Syracuse. So we're an hour north of Syracuse near Lake Ontario. And, you know, people didn't lock the doors. Cars were in the, you know, the keys were in our cars. That's just the way life was in little old New Haven, New York. And the first car that they went out when they went to flag down a car was a sheriff's deputy. You know, and at the time I'm like, oh, my gosh, look at that. You know, I didn't think much of it. And then later I'm like, you know, what a blessing that was, that one of the first cars to go by was the sheriff's. Because wow. really there wasn't there wasn't a lot of time lost in the actual case of looking into her disappearance. Because one of the, you know, when you have law enforcement as one of your first on-scene vehicles. Um, so that was good. And back in 1994... The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were unable to help us. Because at that time, because she was 18 and in college, she was no longer considered a child. And what's the cutoff um, age at that point? 16? And in 1994, it was um, 18 or in high school, but because she was 18 and in college. You're kidding me. Oh, my God. Um, they couldn't help us. Because once you turned 18, you were an adult. Since then, in 2006, Mm -hmm. um, I think it was 2006. I'm not remembering my date right off the top of my head. But uh, they changed the laws. And now a child is anyone, you know, you can be 18 and be kidnapped when you're in college and you are considered a child. Because you know what? You still are a child. You know, you're in college, you're still 
so the laws have changed since then, and because the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is so wonderful, they went in and they pulled in these old cases. And so now all of my sister's information, all of Heidi's information is now in all of the national databases. Oh, really? Okay. You know, so they went back in, and even though, you know, she, you know, she's technically considered, you know, your cold case. They went back and they've been putting all of these kids in their system. They send flyers out still, her missing person flyer, across the country still. Wow, that's great. So, I mean, they recognized, you know, and then there's Suzanne's law that Doug and Mary Lyle really lobbied for that says, I mean, they're the reason that our college kids are now covered as a missing child was because of Suzanne's law. You know, so that was a family that We've had the pleasure of meeting Doug and Mary several times at conferences. Oh, um, Donna, I don't know fabulous. if you remember them or not. I, yeah. I, I think I, I heard about them or read about them. Can you give us a little bit more information for those who are listening about the background of that? Um. Doug and Mary Lyle have the Center for Hope, and it's Mm -hmm. in Boston Spa, New York. And they help families affected by not just missing children but missing adults. And they really do, I don't want to say more with adults, but that tends to be their focus because um, NECMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you know, they do the kids. Right. And... um, the Center for Hope really helps, you know, get families going to help find their missing adult because there's not a lot out there. But they've also advocated to help other teens, like their daughter Suzanne and my sister Heidi, by, you know, Suzanne's law and different, you know, legislation to make sure that, you know, because they're still kids. Just Absolutely. Just because they live at a college campus does not mean they're, you know, an adult per se. They're still a child. Mm-hmm. And we could say the same about the Q Center for Missing Persons, although they primarily focus on adults who go go missing, who, you know, don't get a lot of attention um, due, due to their excellent work. Um, they're another partner in this fight to, to, you know, pick up the slack, and particularly those families who um, may not be High profile in your, uh, you know, the, the people that are profiled on, uh, you know, na- national TV. So kudos to all of these. So that that's wonderful the way that you know missing exploited children has gone back and and done that in the Center for Hope. Um, that, that's great. It's all about teamwork. So with respect to. Um, to the the overall, I know you you were describing that the. Um, that the police had come. Can can you just are you able to give a little bit of information? Um, if we back up just a little bit in terms of this was normal uh, work day or work evening for your sister, and then the perpetrators came in and tried to rob. Is that is that the actual circumstance of how this occurred? Um, actually, there was no sign of struggle inside the. Um, convenience store at all and people even came in afterwards and just paid for their coffee and their paper just figuring that she was stocking the shelves or 
Um, so there was no sign that anything was wrong, yet the one big thing was that Heidi was not there. And we were raised in the, you know, we checked in if we ever changed location. You know, we always had quarters in our pocket to use the pay phone. <laughs> you know, back in the day when there was those big phones everywhere you went. Um, booth, yes. <laughs> and, you know, we called. So for her not to be at work was highly uncharacteristic because that's where she was supposed to be and she didn't call anybody and say anything different. So, you know, it was a blessing that our parents were a bit um, overprotective as, as they raised us. I still call and check in at 45. So, you know, <laughs> well, that's, that's, who, I did too. that's who we are. But that's also one of the reasons they knew something was, you know, not normal. Mm-hmm. Was so, this during a day shift or an evening shift? It was a, her last transaction went through at 7.42 a.m., and it was Easter Sunday, and it was not her scheduled day to work. She worked so that a friend could stay home and be there to watch her kids open their Easter baskets. And wow. So it wasn't even her day to work. It was supposed to be her day off, but she worked so that the woman that had kids at home could be home with her kids. Wow, how tragic. So um, what... What next? The, the perpetrators came in, surprised her, abducted her? Um, we don't really know because there was no cameras or, you know, they just have eyewitness, you know, accounts. And, you know, she's believed to have been taken from the DNW by two men and then one was convicted, one was acquitted. Um, on kidnapping and the presumption of death. Um, Lisa, I, I, did they have any evidence on this presumption of death? That's not one that I've um, heard very yeah. often. No, it's very rare. All they had, um, well, not all that, but they had witness testimonies. They know that came forward, but no physical evidence. And I think it was one of the few that there was a conviction without physical evidence. Well, that's, What's the criteria? That's really unusual as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is there certain parameters where they apply that law, and that's that's for the state of New York, just just the state of New York? Is that what you're saying? I have no idea, like, other than I, they told me that, you know, that's not something that normally happens. Mm-hmm. You know, all I know is that, you know, two people were charged, one serving a life sentence, and I still don't know where my sister is. And that's my focus. Right. You know, we want Heidi home. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that answer. So to us, you know... You know, people say, oh, it would give you closure, but it doesn't give you closure when you have a missing loved one. You just start the next part of a journey when your loved one's found. Right. Because it's never over as it is with any, I can only imagine, any homicide or murder-related case. It's never over. Right. Did they try to, did the prosecutors try to um, 
work or make a deal with the perpetrators to say, you know, if you tell us some information about where she is, we can give you a deal, that kind of thing? Or or is there something ongoing that that they're they're still working on now? Do you are you in touch with them to see what kind of things they're they're working on now? Well, in the early nineties my parents you know, they that was their role and they okay. worked very hard to protect me from that stress and um that burden of you know, having to carry the weight of what goes along with, you know, your loved one being the victim of a crime. How um, old were you and what did you know at that point? Uh, I was 21, 22, newly okay. married. We hadn't even been married a year. And I knew my parents had it under control. So if they needed me to know something, they would tell me. Otherwise, you know, I, I, I looked to survive. That was my mode. And I'm not sure I could have handled anything more than trying to survive at that point. Mm-hmm. And surviving was a struggle. Wow. Now, you know, 20 years later, you know, as my parents were getting were getting older, uh, you know, I had to start stepping up. And then there's been recent things in the news, um, a lot of, I don't really want to get into it, hearsay. So there's a lot of attention back on the case. But you had asked, you know, if we're in touch with the law enforcement. And one area where I have found from meeting other families that, Heidi's case is truly, truly different, is that our law enforcement still meets on her case and talks about it throughout the year. Every new um, investigator that comes into their office at the Oswego County Sheriff's reviews my sister's case to see if there's anything that they missed. Wow. You mean a cold case? They still touch base with the family throughout the year just so they know that they haven't forgotten, and it's been 22-plus years. And they still have their new investigators looking at it. They still call us and check in. They still stop at the house and check in. And they have for 22-plus years. So, And I know that's unusual because I've met other families that, you know, they can't even get their investigators to answer the phone. Yeah, it, and ours are working fiercely. Yeah. Um, do you feel, do you feel like um, are, over time now, are you sort of the designated family spokesperson if if something were new to occur? Um, yeah, that's that's kind of my role now. Um, mm. Last September, on my sister's birthday, my mother passed away. Um, and after a what we thought was just her rheumatoid arthritis progressing, but you know, learned you know four weeks prior to the death that it was actually cancer. Uh, so the past couple of years, I've had stepped up just because my parents couldn't do it physically mm-hmm. and mentally. So. I stepped up because that's what you do for your family. And I've always advocated for my sister, but I don't generally do the case stuff because it's not my, I'm not comfortable talking about the case or, you know, legal. If you want to talk about hope and being inspired and, 
you know, that it's possible to survive. I'm your girl. The other stuff, you know, makes my stomach turn. So that's my honest answer. Well, that I, is I am in that role answer. now, but I have to be on that in that role because right. my mom's not here, and my dad's, you know, in his seventies. This is the role that I, you know, that I'm meant to be in. And so right. I just pray every day that God gives me the strength and the wisdom to do right by my sister and my parents, and you know, make good choices because there's so much that's always going on in an open case that, mm-hmm. that unless you've ever walked this walk you have no clue right um do you have other family members outside of your nuclear family that that you know are supportive or that you know keep in touch about this issue or is it basically you and your parents um, my aunts and uncles are all wonderful so uh-huh. i mean you know it's never I mean, in one sense, it is nuclear because it has to be, you know, with the immediate details or whatever, I guess. But any big decisions are made as a family, Mm -hmm. meaning, you know, my aunts and uncles and, you know, but we were a close family. We were the family that still got together every Sunday for dinner, you know, three generations. Wow. You know, that's something that's, you know, it has phased out, but only in the last, you know, probably five to six years, seven years. You know, it's slowly phased out because all those babies are now in college or, you know, newly married. So mm-hmm. but our family's close. So those decisions were always discussed. I mean, ultimately it was always back to my parents as the decision because they are the parents. Right. But, you know, that's one thing that they did is, you know, they they talked with, you know, their siblings and, you know, my grandmother when she was alive and, you know, it was, it was family, taking care of family. Yeah. You can't underestimate the, the, the power of the support of family, that's true. But Lisa, I know it's it's so very close to your heart. Let's talk a bit about the, the, the positive aspect that kind of uh, carries you through in terms of inspiration and hope in your writing and your faith. Can you can you tell us a, a little more detail about that aspect of your life and what your what your daily routine is now and how you try to inspire others so to de emphasize the details of the crime but you emphasize other aspects, correct? Correct. And I mean the the crime is there. I mean that's right. Why I'm on the journey that I'm on. Yet if I was to spend my life focusing on that, I probably wouldn't be able to get my feet on the floor and get out of bed every morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you really have to, and I, I'll say this, I had many people tell me shortly after my sister um, disappeared, you know, you need to be saved, you need God, go to church, that's all you have to do, just pray. And I will be the first to say those words infuriated me, upset me. Because mm-hmm. um, I blamed God for taking my sister. And he took her on Easter. So I was just so full of anger. And these people would say, all you have to do is pray. And I'm like, why should I pray? Oh, Where was he when she was kidnapped? 
Right. You know, so that was hard for me. That was a, such a hard concept. Um, but after her the 10th anniversary of her disappearance is basically when I hit my my rock bottom. I I just was done. You know, I wanted my sister. I didn't have her. Couldn't find her. Nobody's, you know, telling us anything. I'm like, I can't do this. Another year, another five, another ten, another twenty. Why can't somebody give us Heidi? And without realizing it, I had prayed. You know, I yelled at God is what I did. I had a little temper tantrum with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, that's prayer. When you're talking to God, that's praying. Because he already knew I was angry. He already knew I blamed him. So I think that's like one one of those pivotal moments. Even though I didn't realize that's what was happening, I had at least let go. You know, and just yelled and screamed and, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm thankful there was no like, you know, video somebody could have snapped with a little phone back then because it would have been terrible. But um, then it was shortly after that that, you know, after being invited to church by one of my students, it wasn't church that helped. There was a sense of peace in knowing I wasn't alone and that God still loved me. And I don't have like a, uh, some people have that story where, you know, things just instantly the light went on, everything was better. Right. You know, it was a slow walk forward. But it's because I can get up in the morning and say, all right, God, I don't have the strength to do this today. I'd rather stay in bed and cry all day. I need you to help me get and put my feet on the floor. And not every morning's like that. I mean, that's, and those mornings are fewer than, you know, but it's still a, a work in progress. And, you know, that's where I have found my comfort. Right. And I also keep in mind when I, you know, when I'm speaking and sharing with others that, you know, I try to tell people, don't go up and just tell your friend that's experiencing loss and tragedy and such deep pain. I'm praying for you. Just just pray. It'll go away. Because you know what? At least for me, that was the worst thing anybody ever said because it pushed me farther away. It made you more angry. Yeah. I just wanted somebody to listen. I wanted mm-hmm. somebody that I trust that would just listen to me vent and rant with no feeling, just knowing that I just had to get it out. Yeah, That's what that's... I needed. I didn't need feedback. I didn't need, you know, warm fuzzies. I just needed somebody to sit there with an ear and hear what I was saying and just let me, you know, just, just through that process, I processed. And God was, you know, God does that for me. You know, I can give it all to him, and he does, you know, answer back through, like, a a scripture verse will pop in my head or somebody will, you know, but that it didn't start that way. You know, it just and started with conversation. 2006, that would have been 2004. Okay. That would have been 2004 after the 10-year anniversary because that's when I really hit bottom yeah. emotionally and... You know, I just, yeah. Well, how did you get from that 
sort of progressive epiphany, if if I could use that term, um, in terms of, you know, letting God be a bigger presence. Um, to all of the writing that you do, I, I've noticed that, you know, every you, you write excessively like I do. And um, I, so I can really relate in, with your blogs and you have – um, a lot of inspirational, I mean, you may go to the scripture and incorporate something into your blog, but how, let's talk a little bit about, we've got about uh, 12 minutes or so left to our show, just to let you know. Um, how did you incorporate your writing um, with, you know, with what you've just discussed and how do you um, carry on sort of your daily routine? What is your ritual in incorporating these types of therapeutic endeavors, I guess you could say. Um, I try to um, blog daily. I love to blog. I think it is so much fun. And, Me too. Um, you know, I just see blog moments, as my family now calls them. Oh, here's a blog moment. You know, I'll say, pull over the car. we got to take a picture. <laughs> There's a blog <laughs> happening, and I need to capture it. Um, right. You know, it's those little things that I try to find every day because those little things are in every day. So that's one way is trying to find those little things. You know, and sometimes I share them on the blog. I'm like, who is going to read this? These people are going to think I'm crazy. But I think it's because I am. Um, one lady said, you are so authentic, you crack me up. <laughs> mm-hmm. when I feel, She goes, when I feel like, oh, she's got it all put together, she goes, you'll post this blog about, like, you know, how you had an epic fail. She goes, and you make my day. I said, well, good. I'm glad that my epic failures are helping someone. But that's, well, isn't there that's what diverse, people need to see. Yeah. Can you give us an, like a, an example? Is it, it, what's the, what's the breadth of your, your topics that you blog about? I mean, are, is it all about one particular thing or do you do certain things? Um, or is just whatever pops into your head? My blogs are all over the place. Um, on Tuesdays, I usually, I, I have a Tops Tuesday, which is, um, my sister was known as the Tower of Power, so T-O-P, um, Tops Tuesday, where mm-hmm. if I am doing anything, speaking or writing, you know, publishing related, that's the day that I will post it, typically is on Tops Tuesday, that's like my, you know, my day to connect out of what I'm doing there, but other than that, it's just sharing real life and letting people, oh, excuse me, know that there are, there's positives and good in every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are negatives, and we 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 all have pain. Just um, like yourself and me, and some of the listeners, some of our pains and loss are in the public eye. Yet every single person listening to this has experienced a loss, a pain a tragedy. Some might be greater, some might not be, but sometimes the little ones are great to that person. And then it's not our place to judge the level or severity of a loss or a tragedy. So I try through the blog, I want to encourage people and know. So that is like the one thing and the past year I struggled to write on the blog every day because my biggest fan was my mom. Uh-huh. And uh, so to me, that was 
when you when you think about grief. That was something I had to work through through the grief process of losing my mom so quickly, so unexpectedly. And then having to step into the role, you know, of, um, I don't know, for lack of better words, in a time constraint on my brain, um, like case manager for my sister's case, I was overwhelmed. You know, so to write on the blog, to write at all, had been just work for me. Sure. You know, there wasn't joy. There wasn't, you know, because it just reminded me that, you know, the first person that would read it every morning was my mother. Um, oh, you know, very so special. That was stuff I had to work through. And I'm glad I have. But that was a journey. It took me more than a year. It really wasn't until the end of September. So you're looking at like 54 weeks of figuring it out and getting back to blogging every day or nearly every day. I'm doing much better. And I'm looking forward to it, and I'm seeing those moments. Yeah, wow. That's what I try to do every day is let people know, you know what, no, I'm not always good every day, but every day I get up out of bed and look for the good. And that's what people need to do. Well, we, you know, this is so inspiring, and this is such good information for for all victims to hear. And um, I can relate to so much of it. And to me, it's not so much, I think it's my lack of patience, because I want everything to happen tomorrow, and I think that's my biggest barrier. Um, and I struggle with that. No, it's um, your day. What? Yeah. You want that? Um, well, I I feel like I, I am somebody who can help make things happen, and when they don't happen in my time frame, I get angry and frustrated, and, you know, it's on behalf of other people, and, um, so that is my biggest barrier. Maybe that's the the anger about my dad's murder coming out. I don't know, but that's my biggest barrier is my is my frustration, my lack of patience for whatever endeavor. So I don't know how you want to interpret that, Lisa, but that that you know that is my biggest barrier. And so I try to be positive, and there are days when I'm not. And uh, you know, I, I feel in as much as you do that if we have a presence online, we have a responsibility. And some days I'm not so good at portraying that, but I try to. Um, but, you know, people know that, you know, life is has many shades. And maybe it's not such a good day, but if you're online, you have to provide that sense of hope no matter what you're going through. And I'm better at it some days than, than others like like you. But just to let people know, you know, our our weaknesses and our frailties come out in different ways. And thank goodness for the patience of our good friends and, and knowing, well, this is not her greatest day, so maybe don't judge her as, as harshly. But so I say thank you, all of you, for being patient with me, along with those people in Grief Diaries, because I've sort of vented over there, too, and I put up my apologies last week if... I haven't been too positive, and I'm going to try to be better about that. So that's just my little speech with regard to that and dealing what I, what I deal with. But, Lisa, you, you know what I really want to ask in the last five minutes? In, in terms of how do you measure your mission, is it, and I think I know the answer, but could it be the number of books sold, the number of people that you have reached out to, um, the number of times you're asked to tell your story, 
what is what is the measure of your mission, the measure of the fact that you know you're doing, you know, what God has inspired you to do, what your mom, what your sister has inspired you to do? How do you know daily that you are on the right track? What is your best yard, yardstick? That is a great question. Um, Thank you. I I definitely don't measure by book sales. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank God, right? <laughs> I mean, if I sold a book, that's lovely. But you know, we we laugh a lot that there's this misconception that authors are rich or whatever. But you know, I got my twenty six cents royalty check deposited into my account this week. I'm like, woo! Can't even get a stamp. Twenty six cents. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I feel um, anyway, <laughs> um, it's really measured by those stories when I hear from readers or talk to somebody after I've spoke, and they can say, I'm not alone. Thank you for letting me know I can do this. Mm-hmm. And thank you for letting me know it's not always going to be easy, and it's okay to say that it's not a good day but I can do this. I will survive. And so it's those moments, you know, maybe not necessarily those words, but the moments of being able to help people and help them know that they have options. And no matter who or what is beating you down physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's we can overcome those things. You know, I I need God. I you know, my faith is my foundation, and you know, I think that would help everyone. But you know, I don't want to thump them with my Bible. I want to mm-hmm. listen to their heart because that's what helped me. Right. Somebody listened, and so I think my my mission would be measured by. Um, people that were helped and that have hope that may not have had it before. But I've never measured anything. So I I think that's the best answer I can have. Does that (laughs) answer your question? Sure. Yes, yes it does. And I think it, it leaves us with that message that we always like to convey at the end of the show. Would you... I'm sort of, uh, you know, loading up the ammunition. Now, having gone through this hour, would you recommend um, other other people come on come on this show if they have a a message to convey? Oh, definitely. Um, even prior to, you know, talking to you over the phone and you and Delia via email, and um, even when you know I had my moment of panic yesterday, ladies, and thank you so much for. Um, <laughs> Um, dealing with my moment of panic prior to uh, right, you, you, you it's just it's been a very comforting, relaxed um, preparation, and the, the conversation has just flowed just as lovely as you suggested and well, said it would. You. you know, and that's you know, for me personally, if people are apprehensive and nervous, I think that's good. I think we all should be. Because if we're truly speaking from our heart and doing something we care about, we should have some feelings in the depths of our heart that we will do them justice. Um, right. 
Well, so, so thank you because it, if you're thinking about coming on the show, you are going to help somebody else. And I always say if I can just reach one person with what I do, it was worth every moment. Well, you're you're preaching to the choir here. I couldn't agree with you more. And thank you so much for those kind words. I know I sort of uh, loaded the ammunition there, but as I always like to say, Delilah always has some good words of wisdom too. Delilah, would you uh, do you have some parting thoughts with for our guest with Lisa? Because we've talked to so many people, and I, I'm very moved by this show. Oh, absolutely, I'm too. And again, I think the the contribution that Grief Diaries, especially, has made is is something that's growing, and I I I believe it's going to take take the world by storm here in, in not, not too long of a period. Um, and Lisa, you've just been a fantastic, thank you for sharing your story. I know it's, it's very difficult and painful for you to do, but thank you because I feel, you know, each person who comes on here and works themselves through that is like you say, is helping someone. They're not in, right. they're not going through this pain alone. And, uh, that that's quite important, and it's an important message that people need to hear. Absolutely. So uh, thank you. Very well said, Delilah. And I couldn't, you know, I think that's kind of about wrapping up, wrapping up the present with a bow. Um, so, again, Lisa, I hope this is just the beginning of a new franchise for us. Let's please do keep in, in touch. And and um, thank you for contributing to our tapestry of very good uh, radio shows, and I know you will circulate. So we will say uh, good morning, good good day to the rest of our listening audience. Please do catch this on the archives if you didn't live, and stay tuned for the next edition. So thank you, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Grief Diaries. Thank you, Delilah. Have a great weekend. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice weekend. You're welcome.